2: Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about musical beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about some hot-button issues like war, 9-11, and early aughts, pop country. Really running the whole gamut here. I hope this episode isn't too controversial for our listeners, Jordan.
5: Yeah, I hope uh, this this might be the most controversial one this side of uh, the side of beer for my horses. Yeah, you really don't want to give beer to your horses. I, I
2: feel like that no. shouldn't even be a controversy. I, yeah. I think that's pretty clear cut. Yeah, there should be a PETA ad for that. Yeah, <laughs> we're talking about Toby Keith versus the Dixie Chicks. This was something that it just raged in the culture in the early 2000s, which is a really strange time. You know, like, whenever people talk about, like, how, like, the Trump years are really crazy, I feel like we don't remember just how insane the early 2000s were. The Freedom Fries era. This is the Freedom Fries era we're talking about here. Yeah, exactly. Freedom Fries and all sorts of stuff. And uh, this story, uh, I think, really epitomizes just how... People lost their damn minds for a while in the early aughts.
5: For a really minor thing, like it's shocking to look back at what was actually said from a vantage point of, of fifteen years, almost twenty years, and see the completely disproportionate reaction. It's it's absolutely insane. I mean, you you've got people like uh, Kathy um, Kathy Griffin, yes, Kathy Griffin holding up Trump's severed head, and that's like the line now. <laughs> but yeah, very crazy. Well, let's get into this mess. All right. Now, this all started like so many of life's unpleasantries with Toby Keith's song, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, parentheses, The Angry American. In case you forgot, that's the one that features the line, You'll be sorry you messed with the U.S. of A. Because we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Classic. Classic song.
2: Beautiful. Classic Beautiful. songwriting. Can't argue with that. You know, putting boots in people's asses
5: is the American way. I mean, it he's got a point there. Toby Keith, of course, wrote that song apparently in 20 minutes on the back of a fantasy football sheet, I'm told. (laughs) And really, uh, did you know that? I didn't know about the fantasy football part. I knew it took 20 minutes. I
2: I always feel like uh, I wonder if it actually took like three minutes and then he took like a 17 minute nap. (laughs) That'd be my guess. <laughs> because I don't think you need you know, you need 20 minutes to write that. It seems like you could have knocked that out in a couple minutes. But like, yeah. what else
5: could we put in someone's ass? All right. A boot? No, okay. We could do kicks. No, that doesn't feel as good. All right, we'll, go, we'll we'll stick with boot. We'll just stick with boot. Okay. It works. It works. It's poetic. Right. And this was one of the sort of many hyper-nationalistic, hyper-aggressive country songs that were released in the wake of 9-11, and they all had names like, you know, I'm going to dropkick Saddam Hussein's mama across the Astrodome for Jesus. Uh, like These songs that are really sort of deeply uncomfortable to hear now, but at the time we were mourning the death of of 3,000 people in the most shocking way we've ever experienced. We're trying to process these feelings of grief and anger, and it came out in music like Toby Keith's song, which is a sentiment that a lot of people agreed with at the time.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you remember this song. There was a song called Have You Forgotten by Daryl Worley. Oh, yeah. Who was another country singer. And in that song, he rhymes the word forgotten with Bin Laden. <laughs> and that always sticks out to me as being very indicative of that time. But, you know, even like someone like Neil Young wrote a 9-11 song called Let's Roll. Oh, yeah. Which was named after... The, the Todd Beamer line, that's what the, right? the yeah, exactly. The guy on United 93, you know, said that before going after the terrorists and and the plane going down, and Neil Young wrote that song. It's like, Neil, did you have to get into the 9-11 song business? I wish you had a sat that one out. But, you know, fortunately, no one remembers that song except me. And now except I'm bringing best. it up in a podcast. I'm sure Neil would appreciate me yeah. talking about Let's Roll.
5: Yeah, that definitely just uh, cost us a good like year, 18 months in a potential CSNY reunion. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and but like with, with the, the Toby Key song, I guess he wrote that for his dad because his
5: dad was, was a veteran and he wanted to make his dad proud. Right, he, he had just died. Yeah. It, 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 the song has actually a lot more of a personal meaning to Toby than I think a lot of people realize. Like you said, it was written for his dad who was a, a vet and a lifelong Democrat, actually. And he had just died, I think, just before 9-11, I think. And he was basically thinking about what his dad would, would think of all this. Um, and at first... Toby didn't want to record it. He thought it was too personal and he performed it at the Pentagon in front of a platoon of Marines that were shipping out to Afghanistan and a Marine Corps general, James Jones, heard it and loved it and begged him to record it. He said it's the most amazing battle song that he'd ever heard in his life. So that was really the reason why it it got recorded.
2: He was drafted, basically. He was drafted by the American (laughs) government to, to record this jingoistic song and he had no choice so he did it. And, you know, I already feel like I'm going to be in the position of having to defend Toby Keith in this episode. And it's a very odd position to to be in because I'm not normally one to defend Toby Keith. But in the interest of context, the interest of fairness, I think it's worth pointing out like what his career was like before this song, because he wasn't like some right wing redneck conservative guy. He was basically just like this goofy country singer, like the B side of The Angry American is a song called Who's Your Daddy? You know, which I feel like is more indicative of, like, what yeah. Toby Keith's output was before that. Like, like his first hit song was back in 93. It was a song called Should Have Been a Cowboy. Good song. It was a number song. one hit on the country hits. It's a pretty good song. But, like, his big hits from the 90s were songs like How Do You Like Me Now and I Want to Talk About Me. These sort of, like, happy-go-lucky, witty, goofy songs, you know, that you... Put on in your truck and you roll down the windows and you sing along. You know, and there's not a lot of thought to it. I just feel like he wasn't really an ideologue. You know, he wasn't someone that I think was an intellectual person who was like reading U.S. News and World Report and thinking about geopolitical issues. You know, he was a goofy country singer, but then he wrote this song that just took off and it really captured the zeitgeist.
5: Right. And again, it came more from his feelings about his father than about, you know, reading ripped from the headlines kind of thing. But the song, just because of its coarse message of putting boots in other people's asses, got under people's skin. Peter Jennings, uh, the ABC newscaster, uh, they were going to have Toby Keith on, and he basically asked him to either tweak the lyrics or pick a different song to perform. And Toby ended up refusing to appear on the show. And I guess his fans sent uh, hundreds of boots to ABC headquarters, which is (laughs) amazing. (laughs) it's pretty funny. And I got to say, it's really funny.
2: Peter Jennings, he's a Canadian, man.
5: Noted Canadian. He's a Canadian.
2: Yes. Hey, man, So he America, really He dude. has no say
5: in this. He has no say in this. Love
2: yeah. it or leave it, dude. Love it or leave it, dude. <laughs> you can have some maple syrup up in Canada, dude, if you don't like boots and asses.
5: <laughs> now, what, one of the many people who didn't care for the song was Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks. And she was very critical of the song. And she gave an interview where she said, I hate it. It's ignorant. And it makes country music sound ignorant. It targets an entire culture and not just the bad people who did bad things. You've got to have some tact. Anybody can write, we'll put a boot in your ass. But a lot of people agree with it.
2: And and, and just to put this in the context too, because, you know, we're talking about Toby Keith being this pop country male star who was writing, I guess, party anthems, you know, in the 90s, you know, feel good type music. And with Natalie Maines talking about this, I mean, The Dixie Chicks, I feel like we don't really understand, like, how huge this group was for about a three or four year span in America. I mean, they were one of the biggest bands in American history for about a few years, like in the late 90s and early 2000s. Like, they put out a record in 1998 called Wide Open Spaces that sells 13 million records.
5: Jesus, wow.
2: Yeah. A few years later, they put out Fly, which sells 11 million records. And then their third record, Home which ended up being the album that coincided with the controversy that occurred with Toby Keith and, and, and Natalie Main's subsequent comments in London, that only sold six million records, which is still a lot of records, but a lot of records. Significantly, significantly fewer than the first two. But
5: if you add all that up, that's 30 million records over the course of three albums. I think they're one of, if not the best-selling female group of all time, right? If not the number yeah. one, like number two or three. I mean, it's hard, I'm hard pressed just off the top of my head to think of a, a
2: female group that would sell as many as that. Unless you're, you know, unless maybe Destiny's Child would be like in the conversation. Oh, maybe, yeah. You know, but like I, but but I'm not even sure if Destiny's Child had like multiple albums that were like diamond sellers, you know, the way the Dixie Chicks were, and you know, they really were a group that was coming at country music from more of a traditionalist standpoint. You know, like this was the era of Shania Twain in arena pop country, you know, where she's jumping around and there's like pyrotechnics everywhere. And you have Garth Brooks as well swinging around on bungee cords and basically having a KISS concert every night. (laughs) With a headset mic. And the Dixie Chicks are coming on and they're playing fiddles and and banjos and acoustic guitars. And they're still writing great pop songs or or they're performing great pop songs, but doing it with this traditional country instrumentation and it's really going over in a big way. So... For Natalie Maines to speak out against Toby Keith, I mean, this really is like Godzilla and King Kong going (laughs) head-to-head in country music. I mean, two
5: just enormous stars. These are twin country titans. And her dad? Did you know her dad was a, a Lloyd Maynes Was a huge deal. It was he was inducted into the Austin Music Hall of Fame initial class with Willie Nelson and Steve Ray Vaughan in him, were the inductory class of the uh, Austin uh, Hall of Fame. He was a, a session musician, I think. So she comes from serious music stock.
2: Wow, that's what I call a Jordan Ranta factoid of like <laughs> serious research, my friend. <laughs> I did not know that. That's what I do. Thank you for digging that out. I try. So we have this thing where Toby writes The Angry American putting boots in asses. And Natalie Maines is like, it takes no talent to write a song about putting a boot in the ass. And I I feel like Toby Keith just said, oh, that's cool. I, I don't have a problem with that, right? Is, is that how it unfolded? Like it just ended right there?
5: No, no. He he kind of went nuclear. Um, He had some pretty choice words uh, a little later that year in 2002. Uh, speaking of, I think it was cmt.com. He said, basically, you asking me about Natalie Maines is like asking Barry Bonds what he thought about a softball player, what a softball player said about his swing. That's not true. That's not true, Toby. It gets worse. She's a she's not a songwriter, so we can't discuss the mechanics of the song. Why don't you just go down on Second Avenue and pick one of those homeless guys and ask <laughs> him what he thinks about it? To me, it's the same. What's Second Avenue?
2: Is Second Avenue like a
5: haven of homelessness
2: in, in Nashville? I guess. Nashville? I, I, guess. I, I don't know
5: that. Yeah, that part I don't know. But but he goes on to say he sounded like Lou Reed there, though. It's a very specific <laughs> reference there uh, to urban urban blight, the lost verse of "Walk on the Wild Side." He says, I am a songwriter. She's not. And so she can say my song is ignorant, but it's ignorant for her to say that because she's not a songwriter. She said anybody could write Boots in Your Ass, but she didn't, which is the argument that a mm. lot of modern artists have for, you know, my kid could paint that. Well, yeah, they didn't. She's never written anything that's been a hit, he goes on. So it's ridiculous for me to have to respond to that. And then finally, he goes full Nikita Khrushchev here. You can almost picture him banging a shoe on the table. I'll bury her. He says, <laughs> She has never written anything that has been a hit. Ah, uh, see, I, and
2: wow. he should have said, How do you, you know what he should have said? He should have said, How do you like me now? <laughs> that would have been like, <laughs> that would have been, that would have completed that perfect quote. With, I mean, or like, maybe, maybe on uh, Sunday,
5: I'm going to put my boot in her ass also would have worked too. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe, also yeah, I'm just saying, like, make a,
2: do the callback to an earlier hit, you know, just because you're marketing yourself. You know, what's interesting to me about this, because, as you know, as we'll get into in this episode, I mean, this conflict is ultimately defined by political differences. You know, essentially, there were people on the right that were uh, associating themselves with Toby Keith, and people on the left were embracing the Dixie Chicks. But if you look at the beginning of this rivalry, it's really about musical differences. Like Toby Keith is taking exception to Natalie Maines' criticism of his song on these sort of authenticity grounds, you know, this idea of like, I'm a songwriter and you're not, so you have no right to attack me. Whereas Natalie Maines is coming at it from this idea of, of you know, country music shouldn't be about this. Country music should be more enlightened than this. Country music should be more progressive than this. And this guy is like a knuckle dragger and he's representing like the worst elements of this kind of music. So I've, I really see this like a musical conflict with these two that as we'll see, Takes on like a, a much broader political significance as we move
5: forward. It does get messy, and also interesting to note that Toby Keith, up until I think two thousand eight, was registered as a Democrat, right? And he later on he and this this will have more significance later. He said that he was always against the war privately, which is I mean obviously something that's easy to say after the fact. But if that's true, that's very interesting. That you're right. It really is just um, musical differences.
2: Well, and you know if you. Remember that Toby Keith is not an ideologue, but he's just like a meathead who's (laughs) writing fun songs or songs from his gut. The Angry American, I think, maybe makes a little bit more sense as like an expression of a guy who's watching the news and is just getting mad about this thing that's happened to the country, which I think a lot of people probably felt at that time. That's why that song was popular. And it's one thing to say, like, I want to put a boot in your ass and then to say, like, I actually want to send troops and risk their lives you know, as a matter of policy. You know, like, if we're going to take a sophisticated view of that song, that would be, I guess, my defense of that song.
5: Yeah, he's writing about the emotions of the time and then Natalie man's yeah. is objecting to the actual political implications of that emotion. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, that's a smart way to put it. And she's also saying,
2: like, I even if it is an emotional expression, it's still stupid. And right. Maybe and you are and you are a person who has some influence and has a platform. Maybe you can use your platform for something smarter than this. Yes. Uh, and then Toby Keith to that basically says, "I will bury you." <laughs> Which you, I like how you compared it to the Keith to It actually makes you think of like Dolph Lundgren and like Rocky Four. <laughs> you know, like. like Another great Russian leader. You know, it's like that kind of thing. Like, I must break you. I guess, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of thing. Oh, totally. But this this is really just table setting for like what ends up being the big thing that happens with the Dixie Chicks at this time.
5: They are using their platform, as you said, to try to make a point. They are performing in London uh, nine days before the American invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. Um, I think the day before, about one million people demonstrated in London against the impending war. The Dixie Chicks are on stage about to perform "Traveling Soldier," great song about a GI who uh, writes love letters to a girl he met just before he leaves to go fight in Vietnam. Uh, he dies in Vietnam. It's a sort of the flip side of the angry American. This is sort of the un- this underscores the human cost of putting a boot in someone's ass, if you will. And it's important to note too that this song was a number one hit
2: on the country charts as well, in the same way that The Angry American was. So it, people were also seeking out more nuanced songs, too. you seeing both sides. Although this would prove to be the last number one hit for the Dixie Chicks. Uh, they would never get even close to having a number one hit on the country charts after, again, having this huge run that uh, lasted about five years, really, um, where they really were like the Taylor Swift of their time. So just imagine you have Taylor Swift, dominating the world, and now we're soon going to have a situation where Taylor Swift is, like, extinguished practically overnight, (laughs) which is just crazy to think about, but that's essentially what happens.
5: Oh, it's insane. All right, hang on, we'll be right back with more Rivals.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
5: Natalie Maines is on stage in London. She tells the crowd, Just so you know, we're on the good side with y'all. We do not want this war, this violence, and we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. Talking about George W. Bush. Almost immediately, this statement proves explosive in the country music world and in the world at large. And somehow the fact that it's on foreign soil... Seems to make it even more reprehensible and traitorous to some people back in America. And this was this was the pre-social media age and pre-YouTube. So it actually began with a British review in The Guardian, which cut out the stuff about being anti-war and anti-violence. And so the only statement that was printed was the we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas, which I mean, the context softened it a bit.
2: And basically it says DJs faxing each other like the story and like really turning it into like a thing, like whipping the audience up about it. And I feel like maybe the precursor to this is like in the 60s when John Lennon said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus and DJs in America took that comment and ran with it and they they were encouraging people to like bulldoze their Beatles records and burn their Beatles records. And you had like the Ku Klux Klan threatening to like assassinate the Beatles like on the road uh, uh, for their tour in, in 1966. I mean, that seems like weirdly... The precursor to like what was happening here with the Dixie Chicks. Where it's almost like DJs using this as a publicity stunt to build their own names and to take the Dixie Chicks down at this point, taking this comment, which I think it's fairly innocuous. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean like the foreign soil thing always makes me laugh. Like when people (laughs) talk about this is on foreign soil, you know, that you said this as if she was like in Afghanistan performing for the Taliban (laughs) and burning an American flag as saying this. It's like she's in England, you know, performing for Dixie Chicks fans. It's like, Why does that make it worse than if she were in America saying this? It's just a silly way to, like, justify censoring her. I mean, it it seems like a pretty, you know, transparent uh, thing there. You know, like this rhetorical idea that somehow it's worse if you're in a different country and you're criticizing the president than if you're in America.
5: I mean, it's so crazy, especially in the area of Trump now to look back on on how benign it all kind of seems. But but people I don't think it was just DJs. I I was reading about how uh, DJs would get called up from people who would give them death threats and rape threats. And I mean, I I think it was actually sort of a grassroots thing, too, from from people, especially in, in Texas. And instantly i think in one week their uh, single at the time landslide plummeted from number 10 to number 43 on the hot 100 and then was gone after that and the the, the implications were big the band lost their promotional deals with lipton which is okay and red cross the red cross denied them a million dollar endorsement because they feared the ire of the boycott i think like okay like When when the Red Cross pulls an endorsement.
2: Yeah, even, like, the Red Cross is saying, like, yeah, uh, you know, we don't want you—you went on foreign soil, and you said bad things about George Bush. We can't associate with you. Blood drives, yeah. Yeah, and there were people, like, vandalizing, like, their houses, and I— and like you said, all the death threats and like rape threats, just all this despicable, just garbage that was being hurled at them. And again, yeah, it was more than DJs, but I do feel like there were people in the industry that were whipping people up and encouraging this this type of behavior. You know, and it was from the country music establishment. Yeah. You know, there wasn't anyone saying out there, hey, I mean, there were very few people saying, hey, they have a right to say this. We, You may not agree with it, but we're not going to, that like kill their career over this. It's like one statement. It it's relatively benign. There were no calming voices. It was as if the Dixie Chicks became this focal point for people to like let out their anxiety or let out their anger, or, or it was an excuse to show how patriotic you could be by like putting the Dixie Chicks in their place, and 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 just the idea that like you could really just kill someone's career as swiftly as country radio and the country music establishment was doing to the Dixie Chicks. It's it's really hard to conceive of now. I feel like now we have things like social media where Dixie Chick supporters would have had more of a voice, you know? Or, yeah. or, or just, you know you know what I mean? Like, you felt like there'd be more, equi- more of an equitable sharing of opinions about this, but it, it just seemed like people were in lockstep against them at this time.
5: Well, you think that in the era of cancel culture, we would be able to conceive of this kind of just backlash. But it really, it's huge even by today's standards. I mean, it just absolutely overnight, the biggest country act in the world is just gone. It's just persona non grata anywhere.
2: Yeah, you you mentioned cancel culture, which I feel like a lot of the time is overstated. You know, what cancel culture often is in a modern context is someone says something stupid and they get excoriated for it for about 24 to 48 hours. And then the world moves on to something else. Yeah. And maybe that person feels embarrassed or aggrieved over that. And, you know, it's not easy to be put in the barrel like that. But you're not being canceled. You know, like, eventually people forget about it and you move on. But this is truly being canceled. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like, when the Red Cross is saying, we have we want nothing to do with you because of this one thing you said on stage, that really speaks to just how quickly and how broadly they were affected by this. and, you know, while it's true that the Dixie Chicks weren't canceled, they went on to make other records, and they even had great successes after this. It was never the
5: same. Yeah, when you look at where they were, it's it, they, they were never going to get that high ever again. You had Bush speaking out against them. You had Reba, Queen Reba, speaking out against them. And naturally, so did Toby Keith. He saw a, a good opportunity to put the boot in, as it were. <laughs>
2: Yeah, Toby's been laying low this entire time, for a little <laughs> while anyway, because this is about a year after their initial conflict over the angry American. But now the Dixie Chicks are down, and Toby Keith could decide to be a gentleman,
5: or he could decide to kick them when they're down. And he decided to kick them when they were down. In a pretty spectacular way, uh, during his Shock and Y'all tour... He, uh, he <laughs> great which, title, which, by the which, way. yeah. Let, let, let's title. savor that for a minute. The Shock and Y'all tour. Uh, he displayed a crudely photographed, uh, sc- excuse me, a crudely photoshopped picture of Natalie Maines embracing Saddam Hussein uh, as the backdrop whenever he performed "The Angry American." <laughs> Not incendiary in the least. No, and he, he defended it. <laughs> he defended it by saying that. He thought that Natalie Maines was being tyrannical by her sort of dictatorial-like attempt to squelch his free speech by singing this song. He thought he was equating her with Saddam Hussein— By her desire to have him not sing that song.
2: Which I don't buy that for a second. That seems like such a bullshit excuse. It's like, okay, I I saw Toby Keith a couple times in the aughts because I was a reporter for a small town newspaper. And like Toby Keith is like, he was like one of the only people that would come to the market that I was in. And I I saw him do things like this in his concerts. Uh, Like patriotic sorts of like. Showmanship, like getting the crowd riled up, and he was also touring with Ted Nugent at this time. Whoa! And I remember, t- yeah, it's like the nuge would come out and he would shoot <laughs> an arrow at like Saddam Hussein, like a cardboard cutout of Saddam Hussein, and then the arrow might have been on fire. I can't remember. Let's just say I choose was, to believe it is. Yeah. better. Oh yeah. Uh, but like when I saw that stuff, I felt like well, this is theater. You know, this is like arena rock theater. This is like Kiss kiss, spitting out blood in front of people. (laughs) And, you know, this whole sort of hackneyed explanation that he thought that Natalie Maines was being tyrannical and that's why he put her in a photo with Saddam Hussein. I'm inclined to believe that he did that because he knew that people would get excited to see that on a screen. He knew that she wasn't popular with country music fans. And if you want to get 18,000 people... On their feet and cheering that this is an easy, cheap thing to do. And that's why he did it. That, that seems like a more accurate, truthful explanation for why he did stuff like that to me,
5: oh, yeah. i'm I'm very much inclined to agree. But Natalie, she's outspoken. She's not taking this line down. A few weeks later, she goes to the ACM awards and she's wearing a t-shirt that says f u <laughs> t k What does that mean? The Dixie just publishes this claim that these letters stood for freedom. United together in kindness, but ah, of course, every other person on the planet thought it stood for fU Toby Keith, and that was obviously what it really stood for. I think she later admitted it. oh yeah, so uh that was her a slightly less uh aggressive than a um than a jumbotron image on a uh, international uh, national arena tour, but still message received loud and clear. Uh, they're feuding, and I don't know if you know this. Did you know that there was a uh, a CMT news special about this feud, an hour long TV special in two
2: thousand three? Yeah, I heard about
5: this. Yeah, and it was very slanted toward like, against Natalie Maines, essentially, right? Oh, it's, it's incredible. It's on YouTube. It's just like packed with like Talking Heads, very very soberly saying. I was surprised to see her shirt, and only only Natalie can tell us why she wore it. Like just these. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was really like, uh, how dare you wear this
2: T-shirt, you know, with with, with the letter F on it. Yeah. Meanwhile, Toby Keith is like equating you with like a murderous dictator, I, you know, on arena stages throughout the country. Like what? Like what's worse? Like I think it's pretty clearly the Toby Keith thing, but I don't know if you want to like ascribe this to like you know patriotism at the time or just sexism general animus like you know against the dixie chicks or yeah i mean i think sexism is probably the most accurate uh explanation for this i mean like because there's really no other way to look at this and say that like somehow her t-shirt is worse than like what toby keith is doing (laughs) you know they're at least equally bad but i think what toby was doing was much more egregious
5: oh yeah and I mean, yeah, cause there's no way around, at least there's some subtlety to what Natalie's doing. I mean, there, there's different ways to read it, but yeah, it, it's, so it's pretty awful, but the Dixie Chicks get some defense from a, a fairly unlikely source, Moral Haggard, country legend, outlaw country legend. He defends the Dixie Chicks. He, uh, he posts an essay to his website that's basically criticizing the, uh, the Dixie Chicks radio band. Uh, he says, they've cut such an honest groove with their career because they don't like George Bush. So we should take their records off. I really found that sort of scary. Are we afraid of criticism? If so, why? It seems to me we're guilty in this country of doing everything. We're always opposed. I've o- we've always opposed all my life. I'm almost afraid to say something. It got to the point where my wife said, be careful what you say. Well, that's really not the America I'm used to. Wow. Merle Haggard's afraid. That's, that's, that is an America you don't want to be in right there. He's not afraid of much.
2: And I'm not surprised that he would say that. I mean, I, I feel like he came from the generation that, you know, he. I mean, he started his career in the 60s. He had that song, Okie from Muskokie, which came out at the height of the Vietnam War and was a song that was, I think, satirizing yeah. the redneck culture of the time. But, like, a lot of people didn't
5: realize that because it was such a great song. Yeah, it was embraced by the redneck culture as, as being anti-counterculture, but... And he was really just making fun of them. It was almost like an Archie Bunker type song.
2: And it's it sad to me that this wasn't the moment where Toby Keith and the Dixie Chicks could have come together. Because I feel like Merle Haggard is definitely one of those people that Toby Keith would have looked at and respected. And I think he would have understood the point. Oh, he totally did. He's a hero. Yeah, and I think yeah. he would have understood the point that Merle Haggard was trying to make. But it didn't happen. I mean, it, this just went over people's heads, basically. And it just seems like... You know, unfortunately, Merle Haggard at that time was not the most relevant pop person in terms of country radio. So he was someone that was pretty easy to ignore, even though he he put out his own kind of protest song at that time. It was called "America First. and uh, what's the line in that song? He says, "Let's get out of Iraq and get back on track." Yeah, which I mean, <laughs> so there you go.
5: It's the, same, it's the same thing,
2: right? I mean, that's, a, that's at least as, like, explicit as, like, what Natalie Mayne said, you know? And he put it in a song, you know? She just said that on stage, but she said it on foreign soil. So that's...
5: <laughs> the foreign that soil, I love how, makes it how evil. much that sticks in your craw, yeah. <laughs> that's,
2: the recor- that's the recurring theme here, because that is the original sin here, is the foreign soil aspect, the dirt. <laughs> the she said on the wrong dirt. The red coats, yeah. All gets back to 1776. We're going to take a quick break. To get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stones' hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
1: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick
5: So there is eventually a detente between Toby Keith and the Dixie Chicks. It occurs in August 2003. Uh, Toby Keith basically waves an olive branch, if you could call it that, after a, uh, a band member lost his two-year-old daughter to cancer. Uh, he basically said that that put the whole fight in perspective. He said he saw a picture on the cover of Country Weekly with uh, himself and Natalie, and the caption said, fight to the death. And he just said, you know, it all seems so insignificant. I said, enough is enough. So he, he basically said, you know what, I'm I'm, I'm not going to rag on the Dixie Chicks anymore. Uh, later that year, he admitted how embarrassed he was by the whole thing uh, and how disappointed he was in himself that he stooped to that level. But then he also defended himself for having the picture of Saddam Hussein and Natalie by once again saying that he didn't start this fight. Uh, she started it by dissing his song and by trying to uh, make him not sing that song anymore. It was dictatorial. So really, he kind of backtracks a bit, but... Eh, for the most part, it's over. There are some minor issues later on. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the case. Like, I mean, it was clearly
2: too little too late for him to say at this point that he was embarrassed uh, by what he did. You know, after you put, you know, <laughs> after you put so you know someone's photo with Saddam Hussein and, and blasted on arena screens all across the country, you know, it's hard to kind of step back and apologize for it after the fact. But I will say, and again, I feel like I'm like, Defending Toby Keith here. I'm I'm like his defense attorney in this episode. I do feel like this is probably closer to like who he actually was. You know, I don't think that he was a guy out to make political points. You know, he wasn't like a Fox News talking head, at least not at this point. I think he wrote The Angry American out of an expression of like emotion. He couched it in his normal sort of goofball language, you know, putting a boot in the ass you know, there's not a big leap from that to, like, who's your daddy, like, on the other side of the song. It's just sort of a goofy phrase that, in a way, is kind of funny. You know, and and it's a way for, you can listen to that song and you can laugh at it, you can have a release while also feeling like you're striking back against Osama Bin Laden. Just the way that Natalie Maines engaged with him, which I think was more from a truly kind of politically enlightened position, and just taking him way more seriously, maybe, than even Toby Keith took himself. And then he fell into this sort of default of having to defend his own music and then it just gets escalated from that.
5: And that is a fair point. I mean, in later years, Toby Keith made a very big point about saying, you know what, I'm really not political. I performed for George W. Bush. I performed for Obama. I performed for Trump. For me, it's about the country. It's not about party lines. It's, it's just so y- you're right. In a lot of ways, I think the political side of it is something that he doesn't care to advertise that much and doesn't really care to comment on publicly, whether or not that's for a, a self-preservation reason, because he knows his base sort of remains to be seen, or it doesn't remain to be seen. Look what happened to Dixie Chicks. But um, but you're right. I don't think he puts that first in the same way that, that Natalie Maines takes the stand for, for her political beliefs in quite the same way.
2: But what's crucial to about this I think and what always interests me about these types of rivalries is that at this point it's already too late. That it doesn't really matter like how Toby Keith feels or even how the Dixie Chicks feel because the culture has taken this over and we and they've projected their own meaning onto what this rivalry means. And it's basically if you're on the red team you like Toby Keith and if you're on the blue team you like the Dixie Chicks. And really from like this point forward even if like their initial conflict was really about musical differences they're going to be defined in these political ways in their career and you could see the split in the audiences really and the types of people that are gonna to flock to one over the other when really like when the Dixie Chicks were first starting out I'm sure lots of conservative people loved them you know I'm sure they probably had more conservative fans than liberal fans like buying their records in the late 90s but ten years later that was gonna I think probably change pretty dramatically
5: yeah, I mean, I think it was weeks before the whole London incident. They were singing the national anthem at the Super Bowl, which is kind of the most American thing you can do, right? Sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl. I mean, that just, I, I their place in in middle of the road Americana was so so just ingrained, and and I think to hear that from them was that's probably why it was so shocking. It wasn't just what was said; it was who said it.
2: One thing that. uh, it's, it's sort of like a what if scenario, you know, just looking at the Dixie Chicks and the and Toby Keith as being signifiers of like the different political ideologies in America. You know, there was that ad for Al Gore in 2008. Like,
5: did you hear about that? Like they were oh, going to be in an
2: ad together.
5: Yeah, it was the, the Alliance for Climate Protection. And they kind of would do this thing where they would take unlikely duos. I think they had Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich appear in an ad together. It, basically, you say we're all into this this climate fight against climate change together and they asked dixie, the dixie chicks and toby keith to do one together and it fell apart and toby keith kind of publicly blamed the dixie chicks for never agreeing on a date and kind of threw them under the bus for why it never came together yeah and that would have been a great ad i wish would that would have, have come so together good. that would have been oh good my god it, apparently they they've never met did you know that they've never met or spoken to one another at least as of like, a couple years ago. I guess Toby refuses to even mention Natalie Maines by name. So it's probably safe to say they're still not good fans of each other. Yeah,
2: and, like, Toby, yeah, he won't say her name, and, like, the Dixie Chicks will occasionally take shots at him every now <laughs> and then, right? Like, because there was, like, an interview in 2011 where Marty McGuire... Uh, who was that? It said, like, Emily Robeson was asked about Toby Keith, and she accused him of, like, ripping off a Ur- Robert Earl Keen song.
5: Uh, for his uh, song
2: of a bullet, bullet in the, the gun. gun
5: yeah yeah she basically said you know uh, Toby's new song bullet in the gun uh, maybe play us Robert O. Keen's song The Road Goes On It sounds uh, kind of similar check it out <laughs> and, and that's like you know
2: Keane's like signature song too yeah. so like to accuse Toby Keith of like ripping that song off was like a pretty big accusation
5: but in a way, it kind of matched. Like you know, what if she's if he's going to go for Natalie Man's songwriting credibility and really like you know lay into her, then hit him where it hurts. And it's obviously, not his politics. It's it is how he views himself as a songwriter. So I mean, that was probably the best shot they could have taken. If they're still interested in stoking the uh, the feud between them. So this incident really is like
2: relatively short lived, and yet like the aftermath of like what happened. To the Dixie Chicks, especially. It, I mean, it, it, it continues to this day. Basically, it defines
5: their career. Yeah, yeah, and which is amazing because you, you go on their Wikipedia page, and Toby Keith's name is all over. Like, if you Control F, it's it's just everywhere. You go on his page, and their name is like it, it's not the same at all. Their name is not on it at all. He, this whole conflict really, I don't think affected him almost at all. His his career, would you say? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, like, I think he
2: eventually crested commercially, you know, as the odds went on. And he's, I think, someone now who isn't really a part of, like, mainstream country at all. I think he's someone who could still tour and do pretty well. But, you know, he's reached the age of where most performers get. Like, you don't have hits forever. You eventually get into sort of, like, the legacy artist phase. And, like, you're the just Garth phase. living off your past, basically. Especially in, in country music. That's a very common trajectory. Um, but, yeah, I don't think his career was hurt. Because of, you know, him feuding with the Dixie Chicks. And with the Dixie Chicks, you know, they're a band that is still, like, very successful. They haven't been very active in the past, you know, 15 years. Although they are now ramping up to put out a new record uh, in in the spring of 2020. But, um, I mean, really the big record that they put out in the aftermath of the George W. Bush thing and the Toby Keith feud was the record uh, Taking the Long Way. came out in 07.
5: Yes, and they they really are stepping away they basically divorced themselves from the country community they they say that they they considered themselves part of the big rock and roll family they got rick rubin who's you know incredible rock super producer to make a very sonically different record i always thought it kind of sounded like an eagles record right is that yeah fair to say and that that's the one with not ready to make nice which the whole album is just addresses this whole conflict Head on, Natalie, who had only written sort of a handful of songs in the past, had a hand in writing, I think, every song on this album, and it was therapy for her. I mean, it, it was really uh, them trying to make sense of what they'd gone through, and not many ready to make nice. Just is, is a direct response to her critics, and it's and just it's sort of an act of defiance.
2: And yeah, it won multiple Grammys. You know, it sold I think about three million records, which is like a very impressive haul especially at that moment in time in the music industry, although, again, significantly less than what they were selling at their peak. And, you know, I have to say, as much as I appreciate the fact that the Dixie Chicks were able to come back from this horribly unfair treatment that they suffered in the aftermath of the George W. Bush comment, I don't like their records as much after that whole incident happened. Really? There's a, there's a certain there's a certain weariness that sets in in a lot of their music that isn't there on the early records. The early records are very effervescent and fun and even a song like Goodbye Earl, you know, which is this <laughs> revenge song yeah. about domestic abuse, there's a there's an a, you know, there's an obilliance to that song. There's a joy to that song. Like it's it's fun to listen to no matter how dark the the subject matter is. And I just feel like the subsequent record that they made, it's a little joyless. Yeah, It's but a I little self-serious. That's where they're at, though. I think they they were
5: forced into that position, though.
2: Exactly. I understand why they did it. It's just that for me personally, that's not what I like from them. Yeah. And I feel like whatever wherever it is you want to call it, if you want to call it like a loss of innocence or, you know, their spirit got crushed a little bit, there's just something kind of sad about it to me that it just compounds the sort of tragedy, if you want to use that word, of what happened to them. You know, like, I feel like something was taken away from them by just how harshly treated that they were.
5: I find the silence that followed that record even sadder, though. To me, I think that the fact that they got back in the saddle and actually made music and not only made music at all, but just made music that specifically addressed what happened to them, what was done to them, and all the, the death threats they received. And there was a, a great documentary that came out in conjunction with the album called Shut Up and Sing, which is uh, chronicles their tour in the immediate aftermath of the uh, George W. Bush comments. And the title Shut Up and Sing is taken from a, a, a death threat note that Natalie Maines gets for saying that outlines where and when and how she's going to be shot unless she shuts up and sings. Uh, so it, it's, you're right. I mean, the innocence is gone... But I think to pretend otherwise would have. I I think that almost would have been even spookier to put out like a a really fluffy effervescent album in the in the midst of a very real life or death. I mean, she said later on that she thought she had PTSD dealing with all this. She couldn't go out to dinner with her family in Texas because she was worried that people were going to be spitting in her food that worked at the restaurant. I mean, she she said that they felt tainted, so they they kind of were in. I can't even call it a self-imposed exile, a very real exile with their sound. And and I actually, I like the sound too. I like the kind of rock country. Again, I, I, I thought it kind of sounded almost like an Eagles album or something. And so I like the sound of it.
2: Yeah, I don't, I mean, again, I wouldn't want them to pretend to feel okay. It's just sad to me that they weren't able to move beyond it. That yeah. this was something that was going to find them forever. And also, to get back to what I was saying before, you know, the culture in a way defined both of these artists as political artists moving forward. And, you know, I'm always someone, I I really admire artists who can speak out politically and, and, and use their platform for good and to, you know, raise the consciousness of the public. But I also have some mixed feelings about politics becoming too dominant in art and, where it becomes a thing where you can't just enjoy a song you have to agree with the song you have to agree with the message of a song and to me that's not art that's sloganeering you know mm. that's 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 building like a consensus and it's a different kind of thing to me like the great thing about music and the great thing about art is that you can unite different kinds of people under one banner and you can get them together and you can get them to agree on something that even if they disagree on everything else they can get into this kind of music and this was an example of something that I think became much more common later on. And now it seems ubiquitous. But at the time, I think it was more unique. But this idea that, like, you can't separate who someone might vote for or what they might think politically from their music. You know, that we can't just enjoy a song for being a song. And that makes me, that gives me mixed feelings, I think, about some of their subsequent work. Which really has nothing to do with them. And it's not, I'm not blaming them for that. But I think it just makes me kind of sad you know it makes me sad for both of them that now music is another thing that's going to divide people you know like this used to be something that could bring people together and now we're going to this is going to be another cultural that 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 splits us up when we talk about Toby Keith for instance you know Toby Keith played Trump's inauguration you know in 2016 which you know he was at a point in his career where he probably had to take that gig because he wasn't going to have other big time opportunities like that. He did have a lot to lose by taking that gig. No, yeah. But it's like if if you love Toby Keith's music, now you have that as baggage right. on his music along with The Angry American. It's like oh, it's like I like this song. It's like I like Whiskey Girl because it's just a dumb song. It's a so, it's a song you hear at a bar about a girl who likes whiskey and it, you know, it makes her want to you know take her clothes off or whatever and it's like oh this is a dumb song i hear in a bar and it's fun but now it's like instead of thinking of something fun now you're thinking about this guy who played for donald trump who like was mocking natalie Maines and made her life impossible in the early 2000s you know it's just a shame when these things have to sort of intercede on something that doesn't have to be there maybe
5: i i would agree with that Overall, I think in the case of Toby Keith, there are a lot of his songs that, that it's not just he personally feels a certain way politically, but his songs are completely apolitical. There are certain things in some of his songs that I do take objection with, and I worry that it normalizes, in some cases, misogyny or nationalism or racism. There's Beer For My Horses has that line about lynching, which it, it kind of, to me, it sounded like he was romanticizing it. And I always thought that was really kind of troubling and problematic. And have you heard the uh, the Taliban song? <laughs> the Toby Keith Taliban song yeah I don't think I have no um it, it's it, it's called literally the Taliban song and it um it, it mocks the Taliban which okay that's there you go but um it, it kind of it's unsubtle to the point that it almost reads as satire it, it glorifies George W. Bush in like a, a way that's almost like fetishizing him and it, it kind of like cracks jokes about like Poverty experienced by victims of the Taliban and makes light of bombing the Middle East. And it, it, it just. Something about it, it it's the, the, the politics is there in some of the music, too. And I and that's where I think that in his specific case, it makes it a little tougher. I agree with what you said about music should be unifying people. But with some of his stuff, I mean, even like, I want to talk about me or, you know, American ride where he expresses doubts about global warming. I mean, there, there are some songs and and I, I know he, he's not somebody who, you know, as you said, reads the paper and wants to write a song about social issues. But even if it's just pandering to his base or just trying to write something that, that resonates with his base, some of the, um, the beliefs that, that he, uh, puts in his songs, I I do worry about normalizing things that maybe shouldn't be normalized.
2: But are those beliefs or are those just lyrics that you're putting in a song because you're trying to get a reaction out of your audience? Like if we listen to like rap songs that have songs about murder or, you know, that that might have misogynistic elements to it, we're we're not necessarily believing that like that's a reflection of like the artist's personal point of view. Or if like an artist is writing a song about a murderer or any type of sort of uh, socially unacceptable character, you know, this is something that people turn to because they're just looking for an expression of an idea that they might think is interesting, but they may not literally support. And I would say that in the case of Toby Keith songs, which again, like I'm not defending a song like the Taliban, because again, I think Toby Keith. (laughs) is a meathead and like is a goofball, basically. But I also don't think that we should be close reading Toby Keith's songs for their political intent or their political messages and worrying too much about how that might negatively affect the world. Because I think in the greater context of everything that affects the world, Toby Keith is a very, very small aspect of what makes things good or bad. In the same way that I think most pop music Is like that, and in a way, I feel like that's something that was more of an of an acceptable position in the early two thousands. And now, I feel like we talk about pop music with a degree of seriousness that I think is sometimes a little foolhardy. Where Mm. we have someone like Taylor Swift, for instance who was actually criticized in 2016 because she didn't endorse a political candidate. And there were people that were actually blaming her for Donald Trump getting elected, as if she is like a nation state that <laughs> has to set up, you know, like, like she's... like, like Yeah, or, how many delegates know, she's does like, Taylor
5: Swift have? Personally.
2: Exactly. <laughs> or that she's like one of the branches of government. Like she's like providing checks and balances on like the presidential branch <laughs> and the congressional branch. It's like, no. Taylor Swift is a great songwriter. She's a great pop star. She should not have to be someone that um, is guiding policy in this country. For, she should not for, have for to politicians.
5: be. But she should also be allowed to. Did you? I mean, if she has a exactly. point of view, she's allowed Absolutely. To, to, to share. Did you see the uh, the Netflix documentary, Miss Americana? Yeah,
2: exactly. And she, and she makes a point of very publicly wrestling with this idea of whether she should have gotten involved in the 2016 election. And of course, she has now since... Become more politically active, which is great. I think, again, if you are an artist and you feel like that's something you want to do, you should be able to do it, obviously, and, and not worry that your career is going to be taken from you if you speak out. But I also don't think that there should be an expectation that you do it or that you should be blamed for political outcomes if you don't speak up. You know, It's almost like the opposite has now come into effect, where pop stars are chided if they don't speak enough. You know, it's like the opposite of what we saw in the early aughts, which is a very fascinating
5: development. She got it both ways, though. I mean, she got sort of more mainstream pop fans who are criticizing her for not having a point of view. But then in the documentary, she in in, uh, 2018, she's wrestling with wanting to speak out for uh, Democratic seats for the uh, Tennessee Senate and House seats. And she is crying talking to her father thinking about what happened to the dixie chicks and worrying about what's going to happen to her when she expresses her her point of view and her dad is off camera talking about renting an armored car i mean it's like it 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 doesn't it's scary how 15 years later it seems like the same situation for her i mean she it sounded like she was really in fear for her life.
2: I mean, we're in a tangent here. We, we could maybe talk about this in another episode if we talk about Taylor Swift. I mean, we can talk about the degree to which things like that are real and exaggerated. And I would argue that we are not in 2003 in terms of a pop star expressing an, a criticism of the president being in the same position that, that the Dixie Chicks are. I don't think, for instance, that if Taylor Swift had endorsed Hillary Clinton, that country radio or any radio station would have like taken her off
5: the air. I really don't think that would have happened. I think some would. So I think some country would, but not not many. You're right, and not certainly not to the same degree as the Dixie Chicks.
2: Well, by that point, she was she didn't even need country radio right. anymore. That's I mean, true. she was already into her 1984,
5: you know, phase.
2: Yeah. So. I really – and you know and, and Donald Trump obviously is a different president than George – I mean George W. Bush was like really popular in the early 2000s in a way that Donald Trump has never – I mean he's never had like an 80 percent or a 90 percent approval rating the way that George W. Bush did after 9-11. Um, so I think it would have been easier for her to criticize Trump knowing that there's like at least 50 percent of the country that like hates Donald Trump. And would have been on her side, but I digress. <laughs> we should pull back to Toby Keith and the Dixie Chicks. I feel like with these two, it's really easy to make a pro Dixie Chicks argument, right? I mean, this—I mean, it, it, it's just sort of plainly laid out, like what what the pro Dixie Chicks case is. I mean, because they were clearly wrong. I mean, they didn't do anything wrong. And they just had so much taken away from them.
5: Right. I mean, I think that the only, if you could call a silver lining to everything that happened to them, the, the whole sort of martyrdom is that it, it did make them kind of left-wing liberal martyr. They went from being popular to being important. I think they got a lot of um, attention from places like, you know, even like outlets like EW and Rolling Stone that might not have covered them in the same way. I think they went from being like a Shania Twain or a, a Tim McGraw and Faith Hill to a, a group that meant something. I think that a lot of people listened to them for because because they meant something. and They were drawn to them more, I think, uh, than sort of the average country act. Even like a few years earlier, I don't think that. I, I think it. A lot of people stopped listening to them, but I almost would argue that some good came of it too. And you mentioned that they're not selling as much too. I mean, I they they're um taken the long way sold more than toby keith's album released at the time and it was also the era when itunes was starting to come out and really cut into the uh the sales of physical albums too so it's interesting to, to think about exactly how much they were hurt in a career standpoint but not i'm Spiritually, I completely understand how, you know what, of course they wanted to take a hiatus and take a step back. Like that was traumatic and horrible, everything that went down with them.
2: Yeah, I mean I think I mean I think it absolutely hurt their career in the short term, but I think you're right in the long term, you could definitely make the argument that it made them more significant, that if they had just been a standard pop country group, they would have lost their commercial momentum anyway and they would have also probably been forgotten. Or at least, you know, become more of a footnote uh, as they faded away. And because they went through this terrible controversy, people can look at them and they can say like, wow, they really stood for something and they continue to stand for something. And the people that love them, it just probably bonded them even more to the Dixie Chicks at that point. To the point now too, like where you look at younger generations, you know, people that weren't around when this whole thing was going down or you know, maybe they were too young to know what was going on. you know, they're going back and they're st- and they're going to those Dixie Chicks records, you know and uh, I feel like those records have legs, maybe more in a way because I mean, I think the music stands up on its own, but when you have this outside cultural significance that hooks people in, it just makes it more likely that people are going to talk to you, talk about you. Um, after your commercial peak has faded.
5: Yeah, and, and I feel like I haven't spoken about their musicianship enough, too. I mean, I think that that's obviously one of the main things that they have going for them, too, is I just think they're incredible players, incredible songwriters, incredible singers. Um, I, I just think that that's something that, especially at that time, too, I mean, they were really taking sort of the niche approach. I mean, very traditionalist country approach at a time when that wasn't cool and wasn't very popular. And it really blew up after the whole "Where Other uh, brother, where art thou Type sounds started coming into play in the early two thousands, but yeah, I think that that they took a musical risk too, and it, it it paid off. Now with Toby Keith,
2: it's much harder to make the pro case, and I've been kind of doing this, doing it throughout the episode because I think I'm I'm probably more um, empathetic to Toby than you are, right? I mean, is that fair to say? Like, yeah, I mean, not I, that I'm a Toby, I'm not I'm not a huge Toby Keith fan, but like I can understand. I feel like I can understand his perspective, maybe, like where he's coming from.
5: And I almost feel bad. Like, I don't want to come across as this, like, you know, coastal liberal guy who doesn't understand the real America that that he ostensibly speaks to. I just, I, I worry about some of the messages in his songs. And also just, I, I don't identify with with him, right or wrong. I just I there's a certain sort of masculinity there that that I don't relate to. And again, that may, may say more about me than it does about him. In fact it probably does. And just also sonically, I don't really like his music, or as I very much do like the Dixie Chicks.
2: See, I would say that as someone who at least a few times each summer ends up drinking light beer on a pontoon boat. <laughs> um I have an affinity for Toby Keith's music because I feel like that is the context in which that music is best heard you know drinking some brews on a summer afternoon out on a lake somewhere where you're basically turning your brain off and you just want to have a good time and i think that toby keith at his best makes good songs for that and what i think is unfortunate in a way about his career is that he's now defined as this right-wing conservative redneck jerk And he's played into that. He has a lot to do with that, too. Like, I'm not absolving him of the responsibility of that. But I do think that for people who are inclined to look at him just as an antagonist of the Dixie Chicks, that maybe it might be worth listening to some of his hits. And because I think that, like, they're hard to hate, you know? Yeah, I understand that, like, maybe they're not always, like, the most politically correct songs in the world, although I think there's a lot of old songs that aren't particularly politically correct that are still enjoyable to listen to and don't especially come under criticism from people because they, I feel like at some point you we have like a a line of demarcation where it's maybe okay to have certain kinds of songs at a certain moment in time. And then after that, it becomes verboten to have a song like that. But at any rate, I I do think that for what he did, I don't think he's a great artist and I think he's a much less significant artist, without question, than the the Dixie Chicks. But again, I would just go back to the idea of people aligning themselves with artists because they think they agree with them politically, which I understand why that happens. But I have mixed feelings about that. And I just feel like defining art strictly by its political content or what you feel are the political motivations of the artist— and disregarding everything else, I think that is a hard way to listen to music and to regard music, and it and it just bums me out because I feel like sometimes music should be an escape from that sort of stuff.
5: Right, and I agree with that.
2: Yeah, it's just sad to me, like like oh, this is like, this is like another thing that we just can't get away from, even though I understand someone who might listen to that and be offended, and I, I think they have every right to be offended, but. I just want people to listen to Whiskey Girl and Beer for My Horses <laughs> and uh, enjoy the dumb charms of of those songs.
5: I worry that that the, the Angry American it sounds like, to me, bullying rhetoric, although I understand the context in which it was made. And I feel like his behavior towards the Dixie Chicks was also the behavior of a bully. So I think in this particular right. case, not being able to separate, you know, a person— their personal act and their music to me, I think it's it's one and the same in this this very specific instance, um, and I find it hard to not feel that that he is a bully. I but I also completely understand how there's all these other songs that he has that that don't go down that route at all, and and are just fun barbecue songs for the summer. But I I have a hard time getting past that point.
2: I would just say that like if it's hard for someone on the left to accept Toby Keith, perhaps it's worth regarding the person on the right who reflexively rejects the Dixie Chicks because of what Natalie Maine said in 2003. You know, that they decided that they were going to throw out all her records because they thought that she was some sort of, like, left-wing, anti-patriotic, you know, anti-American artist. And just judge her purely based on that, even though there may have been songs in the past that they really enjoyed. Or because those songs really stand up well because they're musically great. You know, because... The flip side of this is that there's people on the right who reject people on the left who make music just purely for their political beliefs. And if that's wrong, if it's wrong for reactionaries on the right to kick the Dixie Chicks off the radio, maybe it's worth looking at it from the other perspective. From the left to the right is all I would say about that. But maybe we can all get together with our horses. That's the great thing about horses. Whether they drink beer or not, they have no political affiliations. They're just horses. So, we should just be like horses. But yeah, don't give them beer. But, you know, give them a carrot. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll all party together.
5: (laughs) Oh. Well, Stephen, you have not convinced me about Toby Keith, but you have definitely made me take a more nuanced look at angry american and some of his past working for that i thank you and uh i i'm feeling very conflicted about defending uh
2: toby keith here i think i i i, I, I was the musical public defender of this episode <laughs> i think
5: so, wait, so you, you were an f lee bailey you were incredibly incredibly good at that
2: it's always fun talking with you about this stuff man and uh i think we'll have uh, more rivals next week and that'll be great
5: all right looking forward to it sir thanks thanks for listening everyone Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.